<laughs> All right. Hello, Mackenzie. Hi. Thank you for uh, thank for being on the podcast. Of course. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So today we're we're speaking about humanity and mm-hmm. how it plays into healing. Mm-hmm. So first off, let's start. What's lacking in medicine in oh. terms of humanity? Um, that's a great question. I think humanness. Mm. Sometimes when we walk into the room with our white coats on and and the mm. patient sees us, I think sometimes they assume that we're like either subhuman or more than human and reminding Mm -hmm. patients that that we are human and bringing that humanity Mm. back into the medicine and back into that patient interaction. Mm -hmm. I think that that's definitely lacking. I know that we talked a little bit earlier about Mm -hmm. the wearing of the white coat and how it can sometimes feel too sterile. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that we can wear a white coat and, and, and walk the walk and then also talk the talk and bringing that humanity back into the patient visit and back into into that patient interaction right between doctor patient the white coat it has this long history of Mm -hmm. use so it's it's almost taking on of a certain symbol Mm -hmm. to certain people uh the white coat means you know god complex Mm -hmm. and oppression Mm -hmm. and uh patriarchy and Mm -hmm. to other people in different communities it means you know very educated person who knows what's going on Mm -hmm. and that symbol means different things to different people Mm -hmm. so the question is um how can these symbols add to the humanness of the profession or take away from it well i think it depends Mm -hmm. on who is wearing that white coat and and their interactions you know my interactions with the patient um as a student and then in the future as a doctor are gonna be very different than someone else's. And mm-hmm. so I think it's up to each individual to take on mm-hmm. those roles, you know, when they're putting on the, on the white coat, it's more than just being a professional, it's bringing that humanity back in. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something that we need to continue doing more of in yeah. naturopathic medicine, but then in all other spheres of medicine as well. I think of it in a very uh, ritual way. Mm-hmm. You know, like like a magician puts yes, on, Yes. whenever I put on the white coat, I always get like a kind of feeling of like, okay, now I must act like a physician. This is like not me personally. This Mm -hmm. is me almost like fulfilling a role or something. Yeah. So it has its usefulness in terms of, uh, in terms of that, but then it also separates. Yeah. It separates people. When I don't think that, um, you should feel weird about like being you and being who you are Mm -hmm. just because you have a white coat on. I think it's good because it does kind of create a little bit of a a barrier and a separation so that you're able to be Mm -hmm. the best doctor and provide the best care that you possibly can. Mm -hmm. I think that's really important. But just like I've heard a lot of people saying recently, don't be fake online, you know, who you are, um, on Instagram or in the social media That's sphere <laughs> should also be who you are in real life too, you know? Mm-hmm. Like how terrible would it be to meet somebody that you really revere online uh-huh. and you meet them in person and they suck and they're boring and they're terrible, right? Yeah, and they're, they're like social media is like yeah. them doing all these crazy things then you meet them in person they're just like really shy and Lame. reserved and you're like... Yeah. You're, you're lying to me. That was all a lie, right? And right. I don't want that to be what happens when I put on my white coat and uh, I go into a room and work with a patient. I see you know? your point. So and it's I don't like, want to take away from them or their experiences mm, or or what's mm, going on with them. Mm-hmm. But I, I want them to know that right. it's human talking to human. Right. There seems to be a kind of uh, fine balance of what you bring personally mm-hmm. into it because you don't want to be like a robot, like a sterile right. robot that's right. like... This is the diagnosis and this is the treatment because, Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, healing fundamentally is like a healing relationship. Right. So if there's no relationship, then there's no healing. Exactly. And I think that's like the most common critique of uh, modern healthcare Mm -hmm. is the fact that doctors spend so little time with patients, Mm -hmm. that they're so disconnected, that they're so overworked, that it feels like, you know, they're just a car and they're going to get treated. Yes. That works for cars Mm -hmm. very well. Mm-hmm. But the issue with people is that with all these different like mind-body effects and mm-hmm. people call it placebo effect mm-hmm. or the ritual mm-hmm. effect mm-hmm. things like mm-hmm. that, th- that interaction is actually part of what heals them. Yes. So to strip that out and, and, and say like, oh, we focus on only evidence-based usage. So like it's like you come in and like we give you this thing and then that's it. That's all the healing encounter but is. But what about the N of 1? I always want to talk about that too. Mm-hmm. You know, we talk about evidence-based medicine so much and I think it's really important and it really has its mm-hmm. place. But there are lots of N of 1 situations that we should also be including in our, in our EBM too, if possible. Absolutely, and if applicable, yeah. right? There's always caveats to that, but... Well, that's holistic medicine in a nutshell. Yes. It's always N of one because the, the theory is that every person is 
significantly enough of an individual mm-hmm. that you have to treat them in a different way than anyone else. Right. So like 10 people with diabetes have diabetes for a different reasons. Mm-hmm. So you can't just give every of them the same medication. Exactly. Although that is the approach in um, the more conventional mm-hmm. uh, system, mm-hmm. which has its, it has its own merits it because does, for yes. a bunch of those patients, it will work. For some of them, it won't work at all. And then those are often the patients that end up in a naturopathic doctor's office, mm. right? So we don't want to continue perpetuating what happened to them before, most definitely. And I'm not quite sure what can be accomplished in 15 minutes with a, a person in a visit, you know? Like, mm. you're going to get some vitals, you're going to get some vital information, but you might not be getting the whole picture, you might not be getting the whole story. And, and going back to what you said about humanity, I think too, we don't want to take away from the patient's Mm -hmm. experience and we don't want to bring in too much of our own baggage and too much of our own crap. And we don't want to take away from the patient by doing that. Mm -hmm. Um, But letting them know that Mm. that we are human. There there Mm. are a lot of people who do um, cancer treatments who are also cancer survivors, Mm. um, naturopathic doctors, and and they get so much more Mm -hmm. credit when they tell their patients Mm -hmm. that they have had cancer or that they're a cancer survivor. Mm -hmm. And and why do you think that is? You know, I think Mm -hmm. it's bringing that humanity back into medicine. Mm -hmm. And it's not making it be all about the doctor or all about the doctor's crap, but letting them know, letting the patient know, hey, you know, I see you, I'm with you, we're on the same level here, we're both humans, mm-hmm. I might have a shit ton of, of education, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but mm. at the end of the day, we're both humans. How do you personally humanize healing? Everyone has their own, uh, their own methodology. I'm interested in hearing how you make it more human. Humor. Human. Oh, human. No, no. Oh, okay. I bring in okay. humor. Yeah. Mm. When appropriate. <laughs> There's a time and a place, a right? One, yeah. um, but humor mm. is also a really good sign of vitality. Mm. Um, and that's something that really resonated with me. Mm. Obviously, I'm not applying humor in every situation. But sometimes it's really great, especially with adolescents or children, you know, mm. or the, the patient or the, the parent's really nervous. Mm-hmm. And if we can get everybody to just laugh and then get past that nervousness mm. and past that barrier, that has been really helpful for me in certain mm. situations. Um, and I think sometimes verbalizing like, oh yeah, I hear you. Mm. Or I understand, wow, that must be really mm. hard. So validating, I think validation is really key. Mm. Humans love validation. I mean, I love validation. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's different from enabling. I'm not saying that we want to necessarily enable, but validating and letting that patient know that you see them and that you hear them and that you believe them and what they're bringing Mm -hmm. to the table Mm -hmm. and their symptoms and their complaints that they're real. Mm -hmm. That's been also really helpful. Yeah, there is a, there's a very uh, common dismissive attitude, Mm -hmm. the whole, you know, hypochondria thing. Uh Um, It's interesting that most of, uh, most of the people that I see may be considered hypochondriacs, mm-hmm. um, but I think they're considered hypochondriacs not because they actually are, mm-hmm. but because there's no really medical explanation yeah. from within the conventional system. And they don't fit into that rubric. Yeah. And, and in the conventional system, folks struggle with dealing with them, and so then they're automatically Because they don't know off. what to do because... Mm-hmm they may not have the tools yeah. for dealing with it exactly. and that's okay that's not their focus no. but to um write them off write them off them. or put them in like a bad place yeah. and make them doubt their own experience mm-hmm. exactly because I mean, at the end of the of... day it's an experience mm-hmm. and we have to validate that we have to show up mm-hmm. for that and show up for the patient in yeah. all of their entirety that's the stuff that really interests me anyway um I've always been very interested in psychology. Mm-hmm. So even if it's like a case of so-called hypochondria, mm-hmm. so what? Like, let's yeah. figure out what the actual cause of mm-hmm. them, you know, creating these symptoms are yeah. for themselves. Yeah, that's interesting. That's yeah. very uh, interesting stuff. And we were um, we were speaking about this previously. Um, the medical profession has taken out a lot of the humanities mm-hmm. out of it. Like, there's no really philosophy of medicine. Mm-hmm. It's kind of just based on, you know, empiricism and science. Mm-hmm. All these uh, ancient practices of, like, dream interpretation oh, yes. and, like, prophesizing and um, all these different ways that they would connect more with a person are considered, like, ha, ha, we're so, like, far mm-hmm. uh, beyond that. But, mm-hmm. like, I don't think our psyches have changed very much in, like, mm-hmm. thousands of years. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the reasons why um, there's so like little, sometimes meaning within mm-hmm. the healing interaction. Mm-hmm. Mm. I think 
each, everything that you just mentioned has a place somewhere. But I think to completely dismiss those things and not even interact with them is a mistake. Mm. I think when we walk away from things like um, dream interpretation mm. or like astrology, um, whether or not there's evidence behind it, it's been something that's been a part of so many different cultures mm. for so long to kind of just cut it out, I think would be would be silly. Mm. Even if it is just placebo, right? We still know that there's so much importance there and there's so much healing that can happen just with placebo. That's uh, that's my issue with the just placebo. Mm. It's very dismissive of the fact that there's this strange phenomenon going on. Mm -hmm. Wouldn't it be uh, better to understand what yeah. it is so we can use it yeah. on purpose? And wield it and, and have and it And that's what the shamans were doing, yeah. from my understanding, is yeah. they were working with that force. Yeah. But a force that causes physiological change how fake can it be considered exactly yeah and and that also brings us to we talk about black holes and we talk about quantum science just because we can't see something or or feel it it doesn't mm. mean that it's not real or it doesn't exist and so mm. i think taking that out of the picture is just really silly and stupid of us like just because we've never seen a black hole or like don't mm. understand that there might be black matter mm. It doesn't mean that it doesn't yeah. exist and it's not a real thing. Yeah. And so I, I kind of feel the same way about um, working with dreams and, and things mm. that might be a little bit more underneath the surface mm. or, or working with the subconscious. You know, mm. maybe that's not my wheelhouse and that's not what I'm really, really good at. Mm. But I, I don't think that anybody should be poo pooed for, for doing that kind of stuff. Mm. There's certainly many interesting things that, if they're immediately dismissed, they're kind of lost. Right. So we were speaking about. Uh, when we were sitting the other day about astral projection. Oh yeah. <laughs> it's the strangest thing for yeah. anyone who's ever experienced it. Everyone experiences it in a different sense, but mm -hmm. the gist of it is that it's kind of like a dream state, mm -hmm. but you end up out of your body, mm -hmm. looking around in a room mm -hmm. somewhere, maybe like at home or mm -hmm. some other place, and you realize that you're like in this state. Mm -hmm. um, and I was telling you previously that what I found is that there's certain like almost like physics laws in it. Uh -huh. Like at, uh, at at nighttime, you get like pulled into the ground and mm -hmm. uh, daytime, there's like an upward force mm -hmm. and you can't move through walls. Mm -hmm. It's like a different, if it's a dream, it's a different kind of dream. Mm -hmm. um, people in the kind of more occult studies have always kind of looked into that. Mm -hmm. My question is like, how true can science really if it doesn't take into account strange unexplainable things rather than just dismissing them <laughs> I think that's a question of, of uh, the century if not the millennia <laughs> I we're really obsessed with science and I think mm. science is really great and I love science and I love facts but sometimes there are things that we cannot mm. explain and I don't think that just because we can't explain them we should dismiss them and pretend like they don't exist I think that's right. stupid and right. that's not a good approach. Like, why would we do that? It's it's kind of feels like we're narrowing things down more than we should. Right. Like, why would we want our view to be this big when it can be this big? That doesn't mean we're always recognizing or interacting with the things over here. Mm -hmm. But like, I want to I want to see all of it. It's also not scientific. I think it's uh, it's more of like scientism, mm -hmm. where it's like this kind of dogma or religion mm -hmm. of. Like, this is the only kind of evidence that could be considered truth. It's actually really a deep philosophical belief. Mm -hmm. But it's touted kind of as being like, this is the way. Mm -hmm. Which is exactly how the early, uh, you know, early Christianity was. Like, mm -hmm. this is the only way and mm -hmm. everyone else. It's, it's like, it has a similar kind of um, religious kind of zeal feel mm -hmm. to me when I, when I look at it. When I always find it very interesting that the people we think of as, you know, the great scientists mm -hmm. who created science, mm -hmm. Paracelsus. Mm -hmm he worked way more on alchemy than he ever did on chemistry, yeah. which is what kind of it became. Mm -hmm. Or Newton, mm -hmm. right? So Newton, he's thought of, you know, the founder of Newtonian physics. Mm -hmm. But I read some statistic that he wrote like three times more books on alchemy than mm -hmm. he did in, in physics. And, mm -hmm. you know, the story goes and goes that a lot of these kind of inspirational... Um, leaders in science and really innovators had like deep mystical beliefs and feelings yeah. but like the times have separated that aspect and been like just taking what they produced and been mm -hmm. like this is actually the truth mm -hmm. and i think that's why we're devoid of, we're tr almost like trapped mm -hmm. uh instead of recognizing that there's a kind of like um 
dual view where like mm-hmm. science and religion can actually coexist yeah if viewed properly yeah i agree with that mm-hmm. i think in undergrad i remember having to write a paper or a statement or something mm-hmm. regarding science versus religion and how we have kind of come to this dichotomy and i don't necessarily disagree with the dichotomy mm-hmm. um and religion is such a, a touchy subject for a lot of folks too but mm-hmm. it is really interesting that well I, I don't know if i call alchemy like a lot of it was and is still based in fact and is like mm-hmm. very tangible mm-hmm. right um but that does bring us back to like just because we can't see it or we can't feel it or we can't right. like quantify it that therefore it does not exist you know things were kind of cherry picked out of alchemy and mm-hmm. turned into chemistry because mm-hmm. a lot of the processes they were working with they were actually working with chemicals mm-hmm. they were doing all these processes but their fundamental difference of view was that they believed that they weren't just discovering facts they were discovering almost like psychological or spiritual truths mm-hmm. from working with things so like mm-hmm. they understood you know, they would do these operations with this and that chemical and they would do this and that and they would view it as like, this is like what the psyche, this is how the psyche works because mm-hmm. matter and the mind are not really separate. So mm-hmm. like the more we study it, the more we understand ourselves. Mm-hmm. And in a which lot is of ways, different I feel science. like medicine is very spiritual too. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. like I, I wouldn't want to be a healer or a naturopathic doctor if I did not feel some immense mm-hmm. connection to it, right? It wouldn't be fulfilling for me. It mm-hmm. wouldn't really be a passion of mine and so Mm -hmm. i think to take those feelings out of the equation would be detrimental to me as Mm -hmm. a practitioner a future practitioner and um, being able to actually Mm -hmm. heal people and help people Mm because then again i become a robot and and i don't have that humanity so i think that spirituality aspect um and any person's spiritual practices Mm -hmm. whether they call them religious or not is is a part of that health and that healing and Mm -hmm. medicine and that's why we're trained in school to ask people, you know, are you religious? Are you spiritual? And what do, what do those practices look like for you? And what does that support system or that community look like for you? Mm-hmm. Um, and mindfulness, you know, mindfulness is such a powerful healing tool. Mm-hmm. And evidence shows us, you know, we have that evidence-based medicine there that supports that. So mm-hmm. I think we can't really take the spirituality or that feeling of um, a spiritual experience out mm-hmm. of medicine, nor should we, like, because that's kind of what it's been historically speaking. And just recently, the last 100, 200 years, it's kind of morphed into something different. Absolutely, yeah. But that also, too, is going to be, and that's this is the humanity piece, it's going to be different for every single patient that walks in through the door, mm-hmm. right? I can be as woo or as not woo as the patient mm-hmm. wants me to be. Whatever mm-hmm. they need in that moment or in that visit or mm-hmm. for their healing journey, that's kind of where I meet them at, mm-hmm. you know? And that goes back into the humanity piece. It's meeting the patient where they're at too. And do right. we do we see that in other areas of medicine? Maybe not, mm-hmm. but I think that's a huge piece. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a huge piece of what naturopathic medicine is and does that right. kind of sets us apart too. So what is, what is the spirituality of naturopathic medicine? Because <laughs> there's so many different views, right? Yeah, I think. Um, Where do you think it like stems from, and what? Indigenous practices mm. and indigenous medicine. Mm. So more kind of like almost like pagan, like mm, nature yeah. worship. And indigenous peoples, I think, mm. they cultivated spiritual relationships mm. uh, with plants mm-hmm. and were able to communicate with plants and and mm-hmm. or work with plants and they perceived it as communicating however you want to call it um i think that that then mm. morphed into what we have now because you know aspirin comes from a plant mm. valium comes from a plant you know mm. we were able to isolate all these really great compounds from plants um but those that folks original, did that uh, yeah spiritual connection mm-hmm. um it was kind of separated out and I think it's a it's a big disservice to to medicine mm-hmm. to take that aspect out because and to that those groups of people yeah. too like you know I know at mm-hmm. our school and in naturopathic medicine we try our best to not forget about those peoples but mm-hmm. I think that that's not true of all medicine mm-hmm. as a field mm-hmm. it's interesting too that in our education although um, we are thought of as people that are more on the spiritual side mm-hmm. of medicine we're not really overtly taught anything about no. spirituality because there's no. kind of this approach of like hands off right, it's like touchy touchy yeah. don't but i wonder if that's really the best approach um or if there's a way to get to what it's 
what spirituality is aiming at without all the kind of religious trappings mm-hmm. and like building awareness, self-knowledge mm-hmm. and these things that are helpful yeah. for any profession. Exactly. Especially one when you're dealing with fundamental human issues. Yes, yes. Not like uh, inanimate objects. Yeah. And I think that's the work mm-hmm. that has to be done within each individual mm-hmm. who is working in the field of medicine. Because mm-hmm. I think that looks so different for every single person. Yeah. And what that practices or what those beliefs are are mm-hmm. going to be so different from person to person. but. I think each individual needs to kind of take that upon themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, and that goes along with putting on the white coat. It's like, okay, how am I going to do this? And, and where mm-hmm. do my beliefs and, and my spirituality mm-hmm. or all those things kind of play into that? Mm-hmm. Paracelsus, the, the great Swiss alchemist, mm-hmm. says that there's three types of physicians mm-hmm. that exist. One is physician by family. Mm-hmm. So they have a family lineage of being a physician. Mm-hmm. Another is a physician by learning. Mm-hmm. So like they don't have any family relation but they like just learn medicine so much that now they can be considered a, mm-hmm. a healer. And the third type, he says, and he was very religious. He talks a lot about God. He says the third type is the physician that's chosen by like God or spirit, mm-hmm. uh, that it's like a spiritual calling for that mm-hmm. person. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's like a lot of um, the difference in, in people, how they practice. Because yeah. one physician will say, oh, the spiritual world is not is not like part of our scope of practice. Like we're focused on the body. Mm -hmm. Um, But for other people, they'll say no, like that's actually the most important Mm -hmm. part of the practice. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's up to the mm -hmm. patient too. Like Mm -hmm. when I become a practitioner, if Mm -hmm. I'm presented with that question or if that kind of comes into the conversation, that's, I can offer resources, I can Mm -hmm. make referrals, I can direct. Mm -hmm. Would that be something I would want to take on personally? Probably not, I guess, Mm -hmm. depending on the patient, but I'm not going to not talk about it or not allow it to be talked about or not allow it to be a part of the healing journey for that patient because I feel like that's me doing a disservice to them. You know, if that's what they want and that's what they need, although Mm -hmm. I might not be able to provide it, I can point Mm -hmm. them in the direction of someone who can. Like, that's my duty and that's my job. So at its core, spirituality and religions are just a way for humans to reach meaning. Mm-hmm. So if you strip and to that probably out, connect with each other too. Right, it does foster uh, community because it's like part of something bigger. But mm-hmm. it's really it's qu- uh, answers to the fundamental questions of life, like mm-hmm. why are we here? Mm-hmm. What's the purpose of life? What is like my human life for? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is there like is this the only world that exists? Mm-hmm. Um, and these are important questions that you can't separate out right. from the healing process. Right. For example, someone who doesn't have anything to live for, mm-hmm. why would they want to get healthy? Mm-hmm. If they don't fundamentally like the life they live, they don't mm-hmm. enjoy their life, mm-hmm. they may in a lot of cases secretly sabotage themselves mm-hmm. like by slow suicide mm-hmm. kind of ways. Like uh, eating terribly, Mm -hmm. smoking cigarettes, Mm -hmm. drinking too much, Mm -hmm. doing all these acts that they know are wrong Mm -hmm. uh, to their body, that Mm -hmm. they know they're harming their body, Mm -hmm. but they don't really care Mm -hmm. because sometimes they just don't, they lack meaning in their life. Mm -hmm. So you can take all those away, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't actually fix the fundamental problem. And I think that's where the the so-called spiritual aspect Mm -hmm. comes in. It's like if a person doesn't have a purpose in their life, they'll never want to be healthy because they'll have nothing to live for. Yeah. Um, and anyone who's ever become like inspired by something they were doing, mm-hmm. health like becomes such a big focus mm-hmm. because it's like if you have a mission, yeah. you figure out this is, oh, this is my mission on the earth. This is what I want to do. You want to be there for it. You want to be, be healthy yeah. because you have a more positive view towards yeah. life, not like a, I'm trying to prevent myself from dying, but like mm-hmm. I want to really live. Right. Um, but if we don't address that piece, how can we address anything lifestyle related? Yeah, I agree. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is also often why naturopathic doctors get patients because it's they're... It's a big reason. Yeah. And mm-hmm. and the other doctors are like, well, we don't know what to do with you. This, is, You know, we don't have any tools <laughs> yeah. for you. Yeah, and yeah. so I think that there's a place for us in that, mm. in medicine for that reason specifically too. Like we can mm-hmm. be great primary care physicians um, when we graduate because right now we're just students. Yeah. But... Um, mm-hmm. I think being able to wield all these different tools and these these different options or just saying laying it out for the patient mm. here's what we've got you know what do you want to do or where do you want to start or what do you want this to look like i think that's so powerful too and empowering that patient and kind of giving mm. them that back when mm. they might have feel like it's it's been taken from them mm-hmm. um 
and I, I think I had a thought and I, it slipped me. Oh, a lot of times people talk about their calling in life and we, we take that very seriously too. But mm-hmm. it's interesting that um, Paracelsus, did I say it right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you did. Uh, said that he there's three different, I hope so. He has a really long name, by the way. He's like Theophrastus Bombastus Von Hohenheim. Paracelsus is just a nickname he was given. Anyway, jeez. Yeah, it's a very long name. I mean, he said that there's the three different kinds of physicians, um, mm-hmm. but a lot of times people do things, whether it's being a physician or not, because they feel called to do that work. Um, mm-hmm. And we hear that and we take that very seriously. So it's kind of interesting that even though it is what we would consider to be a spiritual calling, we take that seriously when a person says that, but then we don't take um, mm. issues of health that might be spiritually related or there might be some more subconscious work that needs to be done there. We don't always take that seriously. So it's mm. just this dichotomy and we often see that in science and in medicine, we see it all the time, but it's just interesting that you brought that up and it's like there's a lot of evidence of that being true mm-hmm. this is the super classic story of the person diagnosed with terminal cancer mm-hmm. that decides you know what for my last month i'm just gonna live the life i've always wanted to live yeah. they'll they might go to peru mm-hmm. and do ayahuasca mm-hmm. or something yeah um a year later they're, they're still, still alive. Here. yeah a couple of years later still alive and they're a medical anomaly Ooh. yeah right yeah Right, but that's exactly the thing. Mm-hmm. Is it really a medical anomaly? Mm-hmm. Or did they heal themselves by finding the purpose in their life? And that every, like, there's or some healing people that the parts believe, of them that needed to be healed that right. nobody else could address or right. figure out. Right. That were also manifesting physiologically mm-hmm. as like a cancer. Right. And and that's the other thing, too, that's really crazy. Mm-hmm. We talk about stress. Stress is really inflammatory. Ah, and and um, <laughs> it kind of starts in our brain, right? Like that's mm-hmm. where we first experience or first point. recognize the stress. But then the stress actually does manifest as things that we can physically see and that mm. someone walks into the doctor's office with as a, as a chief complaint. So I... I it's all in How the do minds. we separate? You know, I feel like that's mm-hmm. unfair. And that's unfair to our patients too, to, to try mm-hmm. and separate. But again, too, like maybe that's not my wheelhouse and that's not what I'm going to wield mm-hmm. as my superpower um, as, a, as a future doctor. But to cut it out of the conversation is stupid. Like, eh, let's Absolutely. not do that anymore. Absolutely, and there's some research around what actually what harmful stress is, mm. and basically the kind of unanimous thing that's found is that stress is always perceived. Oh yeah, it's h- how the stress is perceived. Mm-hmm. So like, stress happens regardless, mm-hmm. but how it's perceived mm-hmm. affects how it's taken physiologically. Mm-hmm. So like, if you go to work out at the gym, mm-hmm. you put your body under that a lot stress. of stress. Yeah. But you feel great after mm-hmm. and it has great benefits for your body. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a little bit of an extreme example, but let's say you're forced to work, or you're forced to labor mm-hmm. because you like if you feel like this is like wrong and that it doesn't have meaning for mm-hmm. you, that will deteriorate your body. Right. One event can they call it like you stress, EU mm-hmm. stress, like good stress, they mm-hmm. call it. But good stress is just a question of perception. It's mm-hmm. not there's no good or bad stress inherently. It's what's viewed. And I think I think there's That's also where the, comes in. the conversation of hormesis as well when mm. it comes to that stress and that there's going to be this, um, the biphasic reaction and, mm. and that's what hormesis is. But I do think that the stresses that we're also encountering now are very different than what mm. we've historically encountered for the last thousand couple of years. That's right. And true. I think our body too is trying to figure out how the heck do we work with that. Right. So, that's so different. Well, yeah, that's, that's a very good point that there's the perception but there also is some kind of good stress and bad stress external to us so there's the stress of like working at a nine to five you hate Mm -hmm. and there's the stress of like starting a business that like you love right that's like might even be more work yeah but this one's energizing right and the other one is like soul killing but and like, I think too, it's the same amount of effort, but it's right. So that's the weird thing about it. And then it. that's too where our psyche and our mind comes in, exactly. and, and what we're perceiving. But we have to remember <laughs> what we were made to do. We were made to like be a bunch of nomads running around with spears, right? <laughs> Sounds fun. It does, yeah. Maybe I don't know. Um, Saber tooth tiger is not my thing. Yeah. But that's kind of what we have been evolved. Like we've. Mm-hmm. That's our strong suit. And then now recently we were trying to move away from that, which is fine, mm-hmm. but we're adjusting and we're, we're trying to, our mm-hmm. bodies and evolution, Darwin, we're trying to figure out what that looks like for us. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't think we've really figured mm-hmm. that out yet. No. In fact, I think a lot of the illness we're seeing is a result of that. Mm-hmm. 
that disconnect from our biology because yeah. our society and culture and technology has changed so rapidly. Yes. But we're pretty much still we're the, the cavemen, yeah. mm -hmm. like physiologically right. speaking. Yes. We're the same exact humans. Our eyes might less. be getting bigger and our heads might be getting bigger. We're turning into aliens. This probably. part of our brain is getting bigger slowly. Roswells. Yeah. We're going to have huge heads eventually. But I don't know how well or how much better we'll be able to like deal with all of these problems that. It's like big heads, but like no, yeah. uh, no, like good relationships. And tiny arms, and we're just going to fall like... over and then hop in our spaceships, right? Yeah. But I. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> physiologically, we're still doing the same things, and, and mm. we're still doing the cortisol and in stress mm. is stress. Yeah, I think that's the that's the power of uh, naturopathy or naturopathic medicine. Mm -hmm. I mean, what's in the title? Uh, nature pathos or like mm -hmm. nature healing mm -hmm. in a sense. Mm -hmm. And what's more healing than being connected to nature yeah. in all the ways that that means? Yeah, and it's one can so take that healing. very far. Mm -hmm. Like being outside a lot mm -hmm. and doing natural activities like mm -hmm. you know the hunter gatherers i mean they would be you know doing physical activities mm -hmm. for multiple hours every day that's mm -hmm. what our body's wired to do that's yes. what it wants to do uh, yes um they would be eating foods in the natural state they and wouldn't seasonally be, and seasonally too mm -hmm. and for their area too uh -huh. not just like they would be eating chilies in winter mm -hmm. in europe or eating hamburgers 365 days out of the year mm -hmm. if we want to make it extreme yeah. yeah so i think that we're trying evolution is trying to like keep up with all these crazy fast changes but that's the thing evolution is so slow yeah slow do you I mean, think uh, natural selection is still happening yeah that's like the big i think so mm. maybe not with no i think with humans for sure mm. I don't know. I haven't really put much thought into that. But if it's still happening, it mm. still happens all the time with animals. We're animals. We're mammals. Like It's weird because we're like choosing and there's... Okay, so the basis of uh, natural selection mm -hmm. is like procreation, mm -hmm. right? And there's mm -hmm. like sexual choice and that's based on a lot of different factors and like also not dying. Mm -hmm. But like pretty much... Yeah. Don't die. Don't die. And then reproduce. Well, that's yes. the whole. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's the whole crux of the theory. Uh -huh. But... In a world where both are easily accessible, mm -hmm. especially in, in Western world, mm -hmm. where like not dying is it's pretty easy to not die. Yeah, yeah. Like there's a lot of protection against dying. Yeah. Um, Our life like, expectancy though is now declining. Like we yeah. were going up, 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 and now I think we've plateaued and we're kind of going back down to maybe where we'll even out. But that being said, just on that alone, of course, mm -hmm. natural selection is still happening, in my opinion. Right, but where is it? Where is it heading? Are we becoming naturally selected to be like? Hunchbacks that like sit yeah, at computers with upper cross syndrome. I'm like, mm -hmm. Yeah, upper cross syndrome. I, I think I just learned about that recently. I had a had a person I was seeing that had that, and I was like, huh, that's an it's interesting. It's a real thing, yeah. yeah. And I I think that um, there was a, a time. I think it was a Time article um, where they took humans now and then fast forwarded at 100 years and what they think will look like in 100 years and like that's where i said the bigger Whoa. the bigger heads and the bigger eyes um that's where that came from yeah and and so i think just based on that natural selection is happening and i think that whether we think we're controlling it or not it's it's happening i i think sometimes that the laws of nature um might be bigger or greater or stronger or more above us than we like to think that they are mm. like, like we think that we're very intelligent and and we are but i don't think i'll ever say that i'm more intelligent than mother nature mm. like that was all created for us and like mm. we just kind of changed it and put it into a pill form and and worship it now but like at the end of the day who created mm. that not us i don't know that's Epi epigenetics <sighs> yeah. that messes the whole natural selection thing up because yeah some transfer mm -hmm. of uh, genetic material mm -hmm. that's gained from this life. Yeah. So that means that it's not only just die and procreate, mm -hmm. but it's like how the person lived yes. could potentially have an effect. It's interesting, when I was in university mm -hmm. and I was taking biology classes, I walked up to one of the professors and asked them, like, because we were learning about genetics at mm -hmm. the time and I was really interested in epigenetics. Mm -hmm. And I was like, so what's the deal with epigenetics? Mm -hmm. Like, are people researching it? And they're like, they basically told me that it's like a very controversial field and that a lot of uh, biologists and scientists are doing work in secret about yeah. it. Well, that just they're like, like with CRISPR, a lot of that was done in secret as well. Or with They're uh, saying that they're doing this one thing mm -hmm. to get a research grant, but they're like also looking at what actually interests them. And I yes. love that kind of, uh, that kind of uh, beneficial subterfuge. Mm -hmm. And I, well, I do forward. think epigenetics is an important aspect 
of any health conversation mm. because we talk about traumas that have right. happened um, mm -hmm. generationally and mm -hmm. that, that those can still affect the person now. So what had happened to them while they were in the womb or before they were even a fetus and when they were just an egg um, in, in the women's, woman's body or the mm. ovaries, mm -hmm. um, what happens while they were an egg is going to still influence them if they become a, a fetus and then grow up to be a human, et cetera, right. et cetera. Like those are things that will always be carried with them. Right, I mean, if one can look at all of human history as mm -hmm. like one long chain reaction, mm -hmm. because that's kind of what it is. I mean, mm -hmm. something that some person did, you know, 2000 years ago affected our lives in some yeah. very hard to perceive yeah. uh, way, but that's how we're affecting the future. Right. Although we don't think of it like that yeah. because we kind of just see like what's around us yeah. and like our actions, but we don't see like you do this one thing and like 10,000 years later, like this one, this great or terrible thing will happen. That's I why think I think that's it's a flaw free. of humanity as well. Mm -hmm. Like like we're really great and we're really smart and we're at the top of the food chain, but we still have flaws. And that again, that's why I would never say that I'm smarter than Mother Nature. You know what I mean? Like I'm not. I, how well, Mother Nature is the the little intelligence that we have is purely from nature. Right. Unless one <laughs> believes in the theory of the soul being separate from the body. Exactly, yeah. Which is an interesting theory. And we talk about, too, epigenetics and, and trauma and then in, inherently carrying that trauma with you, even though you might not even be aware of it. Like your genes and, and your DNA literally have those kind of markings mm. on it because of, of trauma that happened while you were in the womb or when you were a child. And then that influences mm. your, your DNA. And then that can also cause adverse mm -hmm. health effects. Like that could be why a person is experiencing the problems that they're experiencing. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, that's a huge, that's like a totally another separate conversation, but yeah, that's well, not something that should be... This is the perfect out. place to segue into that. Mm -hmm. So um, trauma-informed care. Mm -hmm. I've yeah. heard this term and you told me a little bit about yeah. it. Mm -hmm. But what does that mean to you? Yeah, so I'm not an expert at all in it. But I do mm. recognize its importance. And as a committed lifelong lear learner, I want to continue learning more about it. And bringing that information to our community, especially mm. naturopathic medicine. So, so what it means to me is kind of... Well, assuming that any person that walks into the door um, in the clinic or in the hospital probably has experienced some form of trauma. Mm -hmm. I don't know what that trauma might be, but I need to approach that patient with that respect and that mm -hmm. assumption. Mm -hmm. And if they haven't experienced trauma, it's not going to make that visit or that experience any worse. It'll probably be better. Mm -hmm. um, but that especially matters for someone who has experienced trauma mm -hmm. in any way, shape or form. And then that allows you to foster that better relationship with the patient, build that rapport, mm -hmm. build that trust, um, and make it be again, less of doctor here, patient here, and more on the same level and bringing that humanity back into healthcare. Mm. That's that's my opinion. And I think that the standard of care should be trauma-informed care. I think anything less than that is crap. <laughs> mm. And doing a huge disservice to so many people because so many people have experienced trauma or will experience trauma. And to pretend like it's mm. not a thing, as doctors working mm -hmm. with humans, I think we're, we're like pretending not mm. to see something that's very clearly there. I have a riddle for you oh boy. about trauma. Okay. Two people mm -hmm. have the same experience happen to them. Okay. One person becomes traumatized mm -hmm. and then another person doesn't. Yeah. What's the difference? I've been pondering this for a while. Like yeah. what actually, because we hear this case of, you know, you know, um, like PTSD after war, mm -hmm. um, but not every soldier gets it. Mm -hmm. And some soldiers are in what would objectively seem to be way worse condition yeah. than someone who gets it. So mm -hmm. what what predisposes someone mm -hmm. to getting trauma? I think that that also brings into the question of epigenetics and a person's genetics mm. and then therefore resilience mm. or not. And then I think also their perception. How do they perceive the environment that they're bathed in? Um, and then what does that look like in their brain? I think that every person's brain is going to have a different reaction and that might answer your question to people experiencing the same thing um, objectively to us it's the same thing but subjectively within their brain within mm. their amygdala it's perceived very differently and that also goes back to the whole ptsd thing you know um some people see beautiful colors and hear the the really exciting loud noises of fireworks and to others it 
brings them back to a time of war or a poor experience, et cetera, et cetera. And that's the thing about trauma, it's so individualized. Every mm. single person is gonna have different trauma, feel differently about it, experience it differently and perceive it differently. And, and that also brings us to the question of reality. Mm. My reality is very different from your reality, mm. is very different from your reality. Mm. Everybody's reality is so different. And so that riddle might not ever be solved because the answer is always going to be like E, other, because there's always so much other crap that's going to be mm. calculated and, and brought into that equation, if that makes sense. So I don't think I can actually answer that. I don't, I don't think that, I think it's going to be different for every single person. Mm. And that's there's... why humanity and healthcare is so important because mm. each patient is an individual. <laughs> do you think there's any way to make ourselves more resilient I do. against trauma? I do. And what is that? I think <laughs> it depends again on the individual, but I think cognitive behavioral therapy or some mm. form of talk therapy or working with a professional who is able to recognize trauma and kind of help that person decipher those things and act kind of as that bridge between the individual and the trauma um, is a place to begin. Mm. I think sometimes we have to also talk about medication. I think some folks need that um, to kind of give them their new normal, to change mm -hmm. their threshold, um, and help them get into a place where they're a little bit more comfortable and a little bit more normal, mm -hmm. and then able to work through that trauma or work through those those poor experiences and then be able to kind of reinterpret them or rewrite them, reprocess them, whatever that looks like for the individual. Mm -hmm. But I do think that there are a lot of things that we can do to be more resilient, but I think that those things are kind of happening within, and that's mm -hmm. a lot of inner work, and there's a lot of different ways and a lot of different avenues that a person can choose to get more resilient. Mm. That's my opinion. <laughs> I would argue that all of the great spiritual paths and religious paths mm -hmm. are the answer to that question in a sense. Yeah, well, I think that religion is also and spirituality is a form of resilience. Absolutely, so it, it gives the answer to how do you live in a world that has evil in it? Mm -hmm. And how do you react when that evil reaches you mm -hmm. in and whatever I, form, in yeah. violence mm -hmm. or um, like harassment mm -hmm. or any form of, you know, uh, When I don't know loss. that, that um, religion or spirituality would be the only answer mm -hmm. to those things. But I think that in throughout history, we have turned to those things that we believe really strongly in and strongly connect to to help us get through hard times right. and I think that that's like the key piece of information and what mm. that looks like for each person is going to be so different mm. because the needs for of each person or each group of people is very different but I think yeah that that's what we lean on mm -hmm. and that's why it's so important too to not take that mm. out of medicine it what gives do your reasoning. mindfulness practices look like and yeah like how do you mm. process these really hard things and, mm. and what do your support systems look like those are all forms mm. of gaining resilience mm. and changing our reactions and changing how we perceive things. What I've noticed in cases of PTSD, especially from war, is that it's actually the senselessness of it that's the most traumatizing, not actually the violence. Mm -hmm. So if the violence is like with like a clear objective and they know what's happening and mm -hmm. you know, I have to take out that target, they're mm -hmm. a bad person, mm -hmm. let me take them out. Mm -hmm. uh, okay, done, mm -hmm. he was trying to get me so I got him first. Yeah less trauma mm -hmm. than like the senseless murder of like a child for mm -hmm. like someone in the infantry unit shot up a family just because yeah. they thought it was funny that that kind of stuff is more traumatizing even though they're both violence and mm -hmm. murder mm -hmm. and i think it has to do with the fact of like that like deeply human want for meaning and like mm. if it's taken away in such a senseless way it mm -hmm. may it kind of like puts uh, puts a stain on all of life because it's like wow that's possible like people can people can do that mm -hmm. why like yeah. it doesn't make any sense right and that's also the thing about trauma a lot of times for the perceiver of trauma it doesn't make sense mm. so that's why i think mm. therapy is so important because you're helping to make sense out of it yeah <laughs> exactly and putting some words and putting some like concrete feelings and putting shedding some light on that for a person who can't really make any sense of it and i think too that's kind of what's happening deep down in the brain They're, the brain's like what the hell is this like i don't understand mm. so it whether it is actually a traumatic event or not 
that's how it's labeled in the brain. That's how it kind of gets filed away. And then that's how someone is re-triggered or reactivated by um, things that have happened in their past because the brain has labeled it mm. as such. And I know that the mm. amygdala has a really big play in that as well as the hippocampus and mm. storing those memories and, and, and labeling them and tucking them away and making those associations. Yeah. It's, it's very, very complex. And that's why I keep going back to the whole individual aspect because for each person that's gonna look so different, even if they were in the same event and experience or perceived the mm -hmm. same thing. It's kind of like an adaptation, mm -hmm. right? So mm -hmm. like um, the mechanism that allows for trauma is like the mechanism that also allows for survival. Yeah, Where it's like so. you walk into a cave and like a saber-toothed tiger bites you in the leg and like... You don't feel pain, thankfully, and you're able to get away but yeah. you're because you're in shock and but then next, trauma. But, but mm -hmm. next time, like you're like a little bit hesitant mm -hmm. around caves and you're a little bit more on right. edge. Right, And... Uh, if you see a saber-toothed tiger, you're not going to try to pet it. You're just going to run. Exactly. And that actually helps you. Exactly. Yeah. But it becomes very complex when we're humans living in society mm -hmm. where mm -hmm. we have all these mechanisms, mm -hmm. but like we're not actually under physical threat. Right. So it's like I'm afraid of like a bus. Yeah. Or like I'm afraid of like a strange phobia of something mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. is just because it's a, like that mechanism of association with the mm -hmm. danger is there. Yeah. So we're scared of it but we can't run from it. Right. Now the worst kind of trauma is one that's based on own internal thoughts. Mm. Because how can you run from your own mind? Yeah. Like that's what basically what a panic attack is. Yeah. Yeah. Just like trying to run away from your own thoughts. Mm -hmm. And like it's obvious what happens when you try to do that because it's right. The more you try to run away from it, the more attention you put on it, the more you feed it. Right. So those kind of traumas that have to do with like internal mm -hmm. states mm -hmm. are especially insidious. Mm -hmm. And I don't think they were typically probably something our ancestors had to deal with because they were too busy just being involved in the world and life to even have a chance they to... They couldn't put words or names to the, those experiences exactly. either. Or they didn't understand and then therefore they didn't pay attention to. Right. I mean, and I don't know, that's such a great question anthroscopically speaking, mm -hmm. like were there panic attacks 2000 years ago? Probably. Did we use the same words or verbiage to describe them now that we than we did back then? No, of course not. But I think it probably also looks very different now than it did back then. Right. And I and I, that's our world that we're living in and that we're bathed in is so different now. Well, so he, here's the thing like what is a panic attack anyway? <laughs> like fight yeah. or flight is just going Right haywire right. but there's no tiger and there's nowhere to run yeah so and then one becomes afraid of the own so there, that's a big uh component of like panic disorders mm -hmm. is that one of the criteria is that they're afraid of it happening again mm -hmm. that's a big like major feature mm -hmm. so they're afraid that they'll get a debilitating panic attack in mm -hmm. public so the second they start feeling anxious mm -hmm. they have a panic attack because they're like oh no not again and mm -hmm. like they, that whole thing gets triggered in the wild, you see like, you know, a caveman trying to spear you mm -hmm. and you're just like, you just start running. Mm -hmm. And um, it's almost like a stifled natural reaction to yeah. something. But how do you think there's a way to like undo it? Mm. I've seen a bunch of people um, uh, under the supervision of attending physicians, you mm -hmm. know, at our, at our clinic um, with panic disorders. Mm -hmm. It's interesting how they're dealt with mostly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They're always just sent for like an EKG. Mm. <laughs> Because like there's they no have heart like palpitations, yeah, and because so they that's have, the main so it's a heart problem. It's like never actually a heart problem, right? Um, so as a person with a panic disorder mm. or or anxiety disorder and PTSD, I think mm. I know, right? Ooh, the tables have turned. Um, <laughs> and not to make it about me, mm -hmm. but I think that like in order to still be a functioning member of society and to be in a position um, to be able to cultivate a healing environment for someone, like at some point I have had to move past those traumas or at mm. least figure out how I can process them and deal with them and not have them turn into what I don't want them to turn into, which might mm. be a panic attack, which might be a whole myriad of things, right? Um, and so I don't think it's something that personally, um, and I'm only gonna speak to this personally because I don't wanna speak to everybody's trauma. I feel like that's inappropriate. Um, but it's not something that I'll ever not have a part of me. It's always mm. something that's going to be carried with me, but how I address it, how I how I um, face it, or how I interact with it is very mm. different. Mm. And that has come from a lot of work that I've done. Mm. And that's why I'm such a huge proponent of therapy, or just for you know mm. mindfulness and, and getting back in touch with with yourself. Um, 
but I also don't know that I, I want it to be completely healed mm-hmm. or completely cured because mm-hmm. it is kind of a part of me now and maybe it's not my favorite part of myself, but I also don't want to like not recognize parts of myself just because they're inconvenient or really hard. And just like I wouldn't mm-hmm. want to do that to a patient. It's either. an interesting view because <laughs> if it is something that really is a part of you, mm-hmm. I think that's the healthy way to look at it because yeah. otherwise... You're going to be fighting a dragon that's yeah. actually your own tail. Exactly. And, then, and that's the worst. Rather than trying to learn yeah. how to uh, yeah. channel that to right. something useful. Exactly. And relearning those behaviors and mm-hmm. and rewiring the brain, like making new connections in my brain. And, and that's why I, I encourage others to do mm-hmm. that too, because that's what's happening on the physiological level. And that's kind of how we cure mm-hmm. or how we heal that. How much do you think trauma is like one singular event versus like an overall outlook on life Mm, i don't know i think i think that is hard because how do we measure trauma how do we quantify that um and then for each person there's so Mm. much that goes into it so for me it wasn't Mm. like i had one traumatic event and then my life was changed it was a series of traumatic events and then my um inability to know how to deal with those and handle those and then and process them and then not processing them at all right and not knowing how to debrief and not knowing um my needs and not knowing how to like reach out for help i didn't have those skills um and so if somebody doesn't have those skills you know it's like they're Mm. just gonna come up with them overnight that's something that has to be cultivated and grown Mm -hmm. um but I, i think it, it depends. If, if an event is so big and so traumatic, maybe one event is all that it takes or one mm. instance, right? Or maybe it is a bunch of little things that add up over time and eventually the cup overflows and, and mm. that's when we see the manifestation of, of the anxiety or, of the, the, or the creation mm. of the PTSD. But I think that is just fascinating. such a hard question because every single person is a person. They're different from anyone mm. else. It's not really an answer, but it is, <laughs> it's it a is response. An it, it makes it makes sense. I view it. We were speaking before about a kind of like solution mm-hmm. based mm-hmm. ways of viewing things. Yeah. And whether or not one thing causes it or not, or the specific thing is, mm-hmm. the question for me is like, how do you resolve it in a way yeah. that's satisfactory to that person? Mm-hmm. And I I think there there's a lot of great traditions in philosophy. So I studied mm-hmm. philosophy when mm-hmm. I was in school. Uh, stoic philosophy mm-hmm. this Greek philosophy you know how the term stoic yeah like oh he's such a stoic guy mm-hmm. well that's not all it meant that was like how they were viewed mm-hmm. but the whole philosophy of it was all these ways of training your mind to be able to deal with difficulty and yeah. challenge and yeah. not be perturbed and yeah. not be like um, shaken by yeah. misfortune and mm-hmm. they were incredibly interesting people that, yeah. uh, that applied that and then more of um certain codes of acting like uh, Bushido, like the warrior's code of, of Japan mm-hmm. that the samurai would follow. Mm-hmm. They trained, they had a really interesting meditative practice if you want to hear a weird <laughs> one. So they would, before battle, they would visualize themselves getting killed in all sorts of manners. Mm-hmm. Killed by arrows mm-hmm. raining down on them, by rocks, by swords. They would visualize their bodies being dismembered, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera, before they went to battle. Um, and what it did was they faced their fear outside of the battlefield. Before. So when they were actually on the battlefield yeah. and it was a question of life and death, they could just be present. Mm-hmm. And I think there's some kind of insight to like um, that mm-hmm. kind of like directly facing the yeah. issue. Mm-hmm. And things like uh, exposure therapy mm-hmm. where if this thing scares you and yeah. this thing traumatizes you, let's bring it in little by little yep. by little, build up your tolerance so that one day you can overcome it and now... Now you just laugh at it. You're like, I don't care. That's fine. And that's another um, strategy that's often used in CBT is Uh asking the question, okay, so what would happen or what would it look like if if your worst fear kind of became your reality? That's a scary question. It is, right? But then (laughs) it allows the person time in a space to kind Mm -hmm. of explore what that would look like. And it takes the fear out of it because Mm -hmm. that's like... For most folks, the basis of anxiety is is the fear, the fear of the unknown. If we take the unknown out of it, mm. and it, there goes the fear too. Mm. One way of looking at it, and it's also really successful for a lot of folks. Mm. Successful for me. If if I'm really concerned about something, I'm, and I'm, it's really bothering me. It's eating at me. I have to take a moment and think. Okay, well, what's the worst that could happen? And 
whatever that worst is, what would I do? Oh, I'd still be okay. I'd still wake up tomorrow. Okay, I can move on. I can move forward and kind of put that behind mm. me. And it's not going to engulf me and I'm not going to be obsessed with it. But that's taken a lot of work to do. And, and that might not work for everybody. You know, some folks need something different. And that's why, again, I go back to it's based on the individual and what that looks like for each individual. Mm. That's actually a thing right out of Stoic philosophy. Right really? There. They had a meditative exercise that was... Uh, visualize like literally the worst thing that could possibly happen Mm -hmm. and like go through to the end Mm -hmm. and see if it's really as bad as what you thought it was yeah and usually it's like it's fearful because like you said it's unknown that's a really good point so like the thing that scares us most is because we don't know what would happen yeah but if we visualize like a reality that's terrible Mm -hmm. this is a weird kind of manifesting i hope manifesting isn't real because if you're uh if you're manifesting like a negative state, maybe you're bringing it on yourself. I don't really believe that. I but. think that that's mm-hmm. not necessarily manifesting. I think that's right. like exploring. Right. Fingers so you crossed. bring up like the worst thing and you face it. And then you realize like, hey, it's actually not as scary as I thought. Yeah. So now you don't have no fear because you're like, yeah, I already went down that path. And like, right. this is the worst thing that could happen. Mm-hmm. And I'm okay with it. And like 99 times out of 100, the worst thing doesn't happen. Exactly. Like something in but the middle But if it does, happens. you're prepared. Or you know what that will look like. And mm. that unknown isn't mm. there. So it's not so scary anymore. Mm. Yeah. A wise therapist told me that or taught me that. Absolutely. And that's why in therapy they always say you're getting, I'm getting a PhD in me. Because like, you really are. You spend the whole damn mm. time talking about yourself and, and figuring out what's going on up here so that you can understand you know, what your triggers are or why right. do they trigger you. And then a lot of times too, this was also taught to me by a therapist, um, recognizing oh hey this is one of my triggers and doing that gives you so much power that you likely will not even be triggered by it Mm. crazy Mm. or not that crazy but true and here's the the thing about triggers and and trauma Mm -hmm. is it always the best approach to avoid them or can they be faced to go beyond them not 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 to not to suggest that the actions that lead to the triggers should be perpetrated on purpose. Right. But it's kind of like this like exposure therapy for mm-hmm. like a child or right. something where you let them see the reality of the world so that they can uh, they can experience and learn for themselves and kind of build up a certain kind of armor to that. Uh, but if you just shelter a child for its whole life and then you throw it out into the world, it's just going to be confused because right. reality was supposed to be this and that, but it's not actually that. Mm-hmm. And that causes that kind of... Um, that kind of schism. I think it depends on what the trauma is. Mm-hmm. I think if somebody's terrified of flying on an airplane, there's a, a good way to go about some like exposure therapy there, right? Under the guidance or the um, oversight of a professional, right? They're actually very reasonable for being afraid of being on an airplane. Uh-huh. Like, I think it's weird to not be afraid. I, I personally- Or have some yeah. reservations. Right, I mean, you're flying in like mm-hmm. a steel cylinder in yeah. the sky. Like, mm-hmm. it's weird that I'm not afraid of it. Like, it's well, probably weirder than if somebody. In a car too, right? Well, that's way more dangerous. Uh huh. But well, I think it think depends on each individual or on mm. the individual trauma. You know, like I think exposure therapy or looking at something um, where and saying that exposure therapy will help depends on the trauma, right? right. Like some of those things are tangible and are going to be helpful and have been studied and like there there is some understanding around that. But then there are those irrational phobias or fears like that that exposing that person to might not it might not help, maybe it will, mm. right? But then you also have to think about risks versus benefits. Mm. Right? And that's also a huge tenet in medicine, you know. Mm. I'm not going to want to expose a person to their trauma if I know it's going to do them more harm than good. Mm. And that's kind of the trauma-informed care exactly. of like taking that into yeah. uh, account before. Right. And then figuring out like what is cruel and inhumane and then what is what, what is, is actually like, medicine and helpful mm, and beneficial. Useful right? for the person. Yeah. That's, that's a really hard judgment I, call to It make. is. And then that's too why it's so important to have this like doctor-patient therapeutic relationship because mm. eventually you'll get to know your patient well enough and they'll get to know you well right. enough where you're going to be able to navigate that situation way easier. Versus when a person just walks in the door and has this trauma and has this baggage, right. I'm not just going to shoot from the hip, you know, like mm-hmm. that, that relationship and that understanding needs to be cultivated and yeah. that needs to be explored. That's the importance of that connection. Cause sometimes exactly. you have to challenge them and mm-hmm. be like, right. this is where, like, this is what I see. And yeah. like, this is where, this is part of the problem or right. something like that. When it's and, appropriate to do so. And when that can you be get very offensive car, cause it's uh-huh. very personal. And that's why you have to, to 
cultivate and grow that relationship because I don't think any patient would want you to do that right away right before they trust you and before they understand what your role and your purpose is and like and um, what you're looking to do yeah and an obvious example of trauma in healthcare is the the typical story of oh you have terminal cancer bye yeah like without any explanation just like dropping such a hard fact and kind of I mean, there's a lot of factors, lack mm-hmm. of time, lack yeah. of compassion, yeah. whatever, but I think... Burnout, but... Doctor as teacher. Yeah. I f- that's the solution, I yes. think, that we should be educating people about their health as much as we should be administering medicines. Yeah. And we should be explaining what medicines we're administering and why, because it yeah. makes people actually take the medicines, too. And, like, what is that doing, too, on the physiological level when they're, like, truly they believe, accepting they something? They believe, and yeah. they're all, like, oh, this will help me with this? Exactly. I mean all of research knows that that's why the placebo Mm -hmm. control is such a big thing because Mm -hmm. it's such a ubiquitous thing found in every kind of medicine Mm -hmm. that it's inseparable from the actual medicine itself we talk about like active patient versus passive patient when it comes to their health care like i want a patient who's going to be actively participating because they're going to get so much more Mm. out of it and they're going to be walk away being and feeling heard and mm-hmm. healed versus mm-hmm. that patient who I don't know what I'm taking like just just draw my blood or just give me the pills mm-hmm. like they and maybe that is what they need or what they want and that's fine maybe that's not the the patient group that I want to work with but um recognizing that that active participation is huge mm-hmm. and that that is going to be so much more conducive for healing mm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Can you tell our audience how they uh, how they can contact you? And oh yes. Get more in touch. <laughs> so I'm medicinal Mackenzie on Instagram. Feel free to direct message me or email me medicinalmackenzie at gmail.com. I don't give any medical advice because I am not a doctor, still a medical not student. Yet. Yeah, not, not yet. Not yet. Just give it some time. Yes. <laughs> um, hence why we're not wearing white coats right now. Yes. But please reach out, DM, and follow me on Instagram. Yeah, thank you. Uh, thanks for being on the show. Yeah, it's been thanks awesome. for having yeah, me. Yeah, great, great talk. I mean, we talked for like two hours before this extra recording. So, <laughs> bye, next everyone. time, hopefully. Yes. Yes. <laughs> All right. Party.